Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. What we're doing in RUF this quarter is we're asking ourselves the questions that Jesus asked his followers. A lot of times when you read the Bible, when you're considering Christianity as a follower, Christ follower or not, we come as people who are interrogating God. He can handle that. You can do that. Who are you? What do you like? Who am I? What do you have to say? He can handle all his questions. What we're doing this quarter is we're letting him ask us questions and see how, uh, what his questions kind of do to us. And what tonight is, is a question that he asked Peter. Um, and he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And Jesus as a historical figure, whether or not you're a Christian, uh, is a historical figure of such significance. He's, any historian would agree, he's the most significant figure in global history. Um, He's of such significance that everyone has an answer to that question. He's so significant that everybody has an answer to that question, whether you like him or not. Everyone has an answer to that question. Uh, So that question is set before us tonight. I'm going to read a few short verses from Matthew 16, then we'll consider that question. Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked the disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Referring to himself. And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. It's not a long passage tonight. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God stands forever. Uh, That means the United States is not going to be around in thousands of years. Facebook and Stanford and Google will not be around in thousands of years, but you know what people will still be doing? Reading Scripture. So, let's pray that God would attend to our hearts as we consider it. Father, we thank you for these words, and I pray that we would go into this challenge, um, that we would not distract ourselves uh, with the discomfort that it prompts. Father, we need your Holy Spirit to actually unsettle us, uh, to question us, to shake us kind of out of uh, where we are right now so that we can hear the challenge in your words to us and in your question to us. Father God, we need you to be with us. Teach us in your name we pray. Amen. Um, If you've not seen Fight Club, I will go see that with you tonight. It's amazing. It has informed my understanding of the crisis of masculinity in this country. But that's another sermon for another night. But there's a scene in this movie, if you haven't seen it. Ed Norton and Brad Pitt are the two main characters. They're standing in a kitchen, and Brad Pitt kisses Ed Norton's hand. Who's seen this movie and remembers this scene? Okay, we've got some enthusiastic hands. <laughs> Brad Pitt kisses Ed Norton's hand, right? Weird. Then what he does is he pours lye on his hand, and Ed Norton starts to shriek because this horrendous chemical burn starts to melt through his hand. And Brad Pitt holds Ed Norton's hand right there and won't let him let go, and won't let him seek relief. And it's this really intense moment, and what happens is Ed Norton starts to create all these different ways to disassociate himself from that moment, 
right? All these mental ways to disassociate himself from the pain and the intensity of what's happening, trying to escape. So he goes to guided meditation. He says, guided meditation helped with cancer. So his mind cuts to like a calm forest, and he's trying to place himself in a calm forest. But then Brad Pitt says, stay right here, stay right here, stay in the moment. Then he goes to like his safe place, which if you know the movie is an ice cave, other parts of the movie. He goes to his power animal, which is a penguin. He keeps trying to disassociate. These are not the important details. Just, just stay with me. I will go see that movie tonight it's, if y'all want to. It's awesome. But he keep, here's my point. He keeps trying to distract himself from the moment at hand. He's, the last words are, he's, I'm trying not to think about the words searing flesh. And this is what Brad Pitt's character says. He says, don't deal with this the way dead people do. The most important, important moment of your life is right now, and you're missing it. And what's happening is the most severely important thing is happening, and it's so uncomfortable for Ed Norton to deal with that he comes up with every possible way to distract himself from it. There's more of the scene watch the movie, but I'm only bringing that in to make this point. What Jesus says right here, what the Bible tells us about Jesus right here, and what it says about Jesus all throughout the Gospels, is wildly uncomfortable. Don't run from how uncomfortable this is. Don't water it down. Don't ignore it. Don't justify it. Because if what Peter says is true, that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of the living God, that changes everything. So my invitation to you, wherever you are, is be willing to be unsettled by the implications of this text. And if, if you can hear one Jewish guy in the first century proclaim that another Jewish guy in the first century is the incarnate God and the creator of the universe. And walk away from that. Here's what N.T. Wright says about that moment. How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that fire has become flesh, that life itself, the life of the universe, became life and walked in our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world, or it's a sham It's a nonsense. It's a bit of deceitful play-acting. Most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. Here's my challenge to you. Just don't stay in the shallow world in between. Okay? Here's the challenge. If you identify as a Christian tonight, here's my challenge. Here's how the text challenged all of us. It's, It's the challenge to me as well. If you're like, I believe the gospel, I think the Bible's true, this, this true story of God's creation and Jesus is our one hope of redemption. If that's you, the challenge is this. Is what we say about who we think Jesus is, right? what we profess, is that consistent with how we deal with Jesus in our day-to-day lives? We say Lord and Savior. They're huge titles. We say Redeemer and King. Do we live out the implications? Because... I think what we usually do is we actually don't adjust our lives to those claims, but rather we adjust Jesus to our lives. Here's the way one pastor summarizes it. This is kind of a lengthy quote, but you'll get, but it's helpful. So we have Republican Jesus, 
He's against tax increases, activist judges. He's for family values and owning firearms. Some of us have Republican Jesus. Some of us have Democrat Jesus. He's against Wall Street and Walmart, who reducing our carbon footprint and spending other people's money. There's therapist Jesus. Y'all can laugh at this. <coughs> You're like, oh, this is uncomfortable. <laughs> Who's he voting for? Um, there's therapist Jesus, who helps us cope with life's problems, heal our past, tell us how valuable we are, and not be hard on ourselves. Starbucks Jesus drinks fair trade coffee, loves spiritual conversations, <laughs> drives a high... You're like, he's the guy I have spiritual conversations with. He can't make fun of that, right? <laughs> Sorry. Um, open-minded Jesus loves everybody all the time, no matter what, except for people who are not as open-minded as you. <laughs> Here's my favorite. Touchdown Jesus helps athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christians <laughs> and determines the outcome of Super Bowls. Um... I guess Jesus is an Alabama fan, but that's another <laughs> theological quandary. And a Patriots fan. Oh. There's yeah. gentle Jesus. No, no, he's not. The point is, this is not that Jesus. <laughs> the gentle Jesus, who is meek and mild, with high cheekbones, flowing hair, walks around barefoot, wearing a sash, and looks German. <laughs> the hippie Jesus, who teaches everyone to give peace a chance, imagine a world without religion, helps us remember all you need is love. Yuppie Jesus. I like this one. This is my Jesus. Encourages us to reach our full potential, reach for the stars, and buy a boat. <laughs> Spirituality, <coughs> Jesus. Hates religion, churches, pastors, priests, and doctrine. He wants us to find the God within and listen to ambiguously spiritual music. <laughs> that might be the song Oceans, but that's also another talk. <laughs> if y'all like Oceans, we love you. Come to RUF, okay? Um, there's plaque. <laughs> oh, reel it in. Uh, Kenan, I have empathy. You, you feeling this moment? All right. Kenan loses it up here sometime too. <laughs> Platitude Jesus. I got to stop. Good for Christmas specials, greeting cards, bad sermons, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Inspires people to believe in themselves and lifts us up so we can walk on mountains. Um, revolutionary Jesus teaches us to rebel against the status quo, stick it to the man, dream up impossible utopian schemes. Guru Jesus, a wise, inspirational teacher who believes in you and helps you find your center. Boyfriend Jesus, who wraps his arm around us as we sing about his intoxicating love in our secret place. That was weird. Good example, Jesus, who shows you how to help people change the planet and become a better you. Those are just a handful of the Jesuses I think we create. Um, to reel it back in for a second, one of the reasons I think that we have a very thin spiritual experience, right? If you're like, I don't know if I have a vibrant spiritual experience of the love of God. One of the reasons I think that we often have a very thin experience of that is because we haven't wrestled with who Jesus says he is. And instead, what we've done is we've chosen a life we want and asked him to endorse that life. And so we want from him this first an endorsement of like, ah, oh, this mildly moral kind of religious life we want, where we also kind of get some things we want out of it. So we want an endorsement from him, and then we want his assistance in getting it. Right? And, and to challenge that, all you have to do is actually read the book of Revelation and see this, that the grand sweep of redemption ends in worship. You know, that's how it all ends. You know, the book of Revelation is a huge picture of worship. The picture of the new heavens and the new earth at the end of God's grand story is a scene in worship in His throne room. Now, we need to, I need to say two things about that, and then we'll move on. 
that sounds weird and boring to us. Right? What? That's new heavens and new earth? Yeah, that is. But actually, worship is the main thing that all of us enjoy the most. Because worship is enjoying and declaring the good things about something you love. That's our favorite thing to do. Is to enjoy and declare the great things about things we love. Worship is actually something we're doing all the time, whether it's Christian McCaffrey or Stanford or your family or music or party or food. Worship is not foreign to us. Worship is our favorite activity. And in fact, one writer argues that when you enjoy something, that the actually consummation, the supreme delight of enjoying it comes when it, you burst forth proclaiming its excellencies. You do this, I do this at football games all the time when you stand up and scream in the glory of what you saw on the field. That's worship. It is consummating itself in that expression in that moment. Now, if worship, here's my point, if worship is something we actually love to do all the time, it's not very foreign to us, why does the image of the worship of God in His throne room not thrill us? Why do we think, ah, that sounds boring? What I think that does is that tells us what we think of Jesus. No one worships an assistant You appreciate an assistant. You casually remember them and call on them when you need something, and they can be helpful, and you thank them when they get your coffee or your boyfriend or your grade or whatever it is you want from them. You thank an assistant, and you appreciate an assistant. Everyone worships their Savior. So the challenge for you tonight, if you're like, this is my thing, I'm a Christian, I identify with this, profess faith in Jesus, is this. Can you have enough integrity to say with me, I'm here with you, that who I profess Jesus to be and how I respond are totally at odds with each other? Jesus is not an assistant. And none of us wants to admit that that's what we think he is and that's how we treat him. And what none of us really want to admit is we think he's an assistant and we really actually think he's a bad one. Because what assistants are supposed to do is get your coffee right. And we're like, Jesus, as our assistant, where's my significant other? Where's my internship? Where's my family fixed? If you're really honest with yourself, you're like, I think he's an assistant. I don't even think he's a good one. You know why? Because he's not an assistant, and he never said he would be. He's a king, and he's a redeemer. If you're here tonight, you're like, that's not where I am. You're a skeptic. You wouldn't identify. You're not sure if you have faith. Here's the invitation to you. The invitation to you is just don't have a tepid response. Don't make the mistake that all of us Christians in the room have already made, which, has a, which is to have a tepid response. Um, I just watched the first episode of Westworld. Anybody? Wow, this is lonely. Um, <laughs> it's the new HBO drama that came out this past week. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. Anyways, you don't have to know that. You don't have to see it to get this. The premise is that there's a Western theme park. This is, you know, near, near future, where there's this entire constructed Western world with lifelike uh, artificial intelligence kind of humanoids. And people can pay and go live out a fantasy there, like live out a gunfight, live out chasing a bandit, all that kind of stuff. 
Um, well, there's a scene in the opening episode last night in which one of the humanoids, one of the artificial intelligence kind of people, becomes aware of two things. The first is that he may have a maker. The character's name is Abernathy. And the second is that it might be possible to know his maker. And this is what happens to Abernathy when it dawns on him simply the possibility that he might have a maker and the possibility that he could know his maker is he sits down on his porch and can't get up. And he sits there all night in terror and in hope and in confusion and anticipation. The possibility, the, the fact that in his imagination for the very first time he realized maybe I'm made and it's possible to know the one who made me is so bracing that he sits startled all night on his front porch. And the makers of the show realize that if you find out that maybe you were created, and then you discover that it maybe is possible then to know your maker, you can never be the same person ever again. If you entertain those two ideas, the chief task you now have in life is to find out whether or not you can meet the one who made you. You can never be the same person ever again. The way uh, G.K. Chesterton, an early 20th century British writer, said it is this. If I found a key on the road and discovered it fit and opened a particular lock at my house, I would assume most likely that the key was made by the lockmaker. If I find a set of teachings that are set out in pre-modern oriental society that has proven itself of such universal validity that it has fascinated and satisfied millions of people in every century, including the best minds in history and the simplest hearts, that it's made itself at home in virtually every culture, it's inspired masterpieces of beauty in every field of art, continues to grow rapidly and spread and assert itself in lands where just a century ago the name of Jesus Christ was not even heard, if such teaching so obviously fix, fits the locks of so many human souls in so many times, in so many places, are they likely to be the work of a deceiver or a fool? In fact, I would say it's more likely they were designed by the heart maker. Either Jesus has got to be dismissed or he's your heart maker. The one thing none of us can do is have a tepid response. The one thing we can't do is say, I like the teaching of Jesus. If you and I, if you're like, hey, I want to get Phil's, let's go get Phil's. Good to meet you, Britain. I'm glad I came to RUF. And we sat down at Phil's tomorrow and you said, hey, uh, teach me wisdom for how to deal with a difficult roommate, knowledge for making mature decisions, and let's talk about dating. And, we, and I was just like, oh man, awesome. And I just waxed eloquent on those topics. And then after doing that for an hour and a half, I closed it by saying, oh, and also... I am the way and the truth and the life and no one can know God the Father except through me. If that happened tomorrow it fills, there is no way that your response would be, hey, thanks. You're wildly deluded and the general public is not safe as long as you're kind of allowed to be out in it. But I'm going to put into practice a bunch of the things you taught. That was really helpful. <laughs> You would never have that response. We can't respond to Jesus that way either. What is the claim? That's the challenge. We've got to be unsettled. It's okay. 
to be unsettled. What does Jesus tell us who he is? Jesus first asked Peter, he says, who do people say the Son of Man is? And Peter says, some say John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. What does that answer reflect? It just re- reflects what they would want Jesus to be in their culture. All right? It's not Republican or Democrat Jesus or boyfriend Jesus. It's John the Baptist, Elijah, or Jeremiah. Um, and what we do is we imprint our culture's values on Jesus all the time. He tends to look like the person who's speaking, right? Uh, and in so doing, we actually deny from Jesus the very thing that we demand from each other. We tell him who he is, and we make him in our image and tell him we understand him and what he is like instead of seeing him for who he reveals himself to be. So then Jesus asked Peter, I don't know what the culture thinks. Who do you say that I am? And he asked you, who do you say that he is? And Peter says to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah in the Old Testament. Peter is saying you are the Messiah. Messiah and Christ mean anointed one, and not just generically anointed, but anointed king, someone that God has set apart to rule all things. The one actually about which the whole Old Testament was always anticipating and pointing when it talks about the king who would reign forever in Isaiah 9 and Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. And in case we didn't get the implication, Peter piles it on, the son of the living God. And John, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. He doesn't say I know it. He says I am. No one comes to the Father except by me. Jesus says, I and the Father Father are one. Jesus says, before Abraham was, your patriarch from thousands of years ago, I am. Someone actually asked Jesus in John 9, who is the Lord so that I can believe in him? And Jesus says, I mean, think about this moment to look at a 30-year-old guy and he says, you've seen him. He's the one talking to you. The way Paul says it in Colossians, that he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the physical embodied human expression of God. Jesus is God's heart in a human story. He is claiming to be our king and our creator. And you, what you got to see is, we actually see this in literature and movies and TV all the time. How does an author make him or herself known to their characters in a story? They write themselves into the story. And that's what God did. Psalm 19 says you can learn a lot about God's big things, right? His power, His majesty, by looking at nature and being in awe, right? You go to Yosemite, you come into the valley for the first time, and you experience something spiritual. You're like, there's majesty here and there's power here that I can't explain. That's a spiritual experience. You can know about God through nature, but you can know God through the person of Jesus, from the author writing himself into the story. Jesus is either our king, creator, and redeemer, or he's nothing. But he is not just a helpful teacher, and he is not an assistant. Implications. What does this mean for us? First this, stop trying to tame him. Stop thinking he looks like you and votes like you. Because what happens is, once you start sanding the edges off that trouble you, and that our culture finds troubling about him, because they make us uneasy, then you've started to shape in, in your image, 
And that's actually the main way we avoid the uncomfortable moment of encountering Jesus. As we stand off the edges that like are hard to deal with. And every time you encounter something that you don't know how to handle when you read the story of Jesus and you want to soften it or you want to rewrite it or you want to ignore it, what you've got to imagine right now, I'm going to introduce Brad Pitt into your spiritual disciplines. You've got to imagine Brad Pitt holding your hand and saying, no, 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 stay right here, stay with this moment. Because if Jesus is who He says He is, we actually submit our thinking and our feeling to the authority of His life and His words instead of what we usually do, which is we submit His life and His words to the authority of our thinking and our feeling. If Jesus does not contradict you, you're not dealing with Jesus. You're dealing with probably a Christian-y self-projection. Stop trying to tame Him. He upsets everybody. He upsets conservative cultures because of His grace, because He welcomes sinners and prostitutes into His kingdom. He upsets liberal cultures because He reinforces and upholds every aspect and application of the moral law. He is both grace and truth. He has absolute zeal for the moral law, and as our Maker, He has outlined the way to live and to flourish. Out of love, He actually gives us rules. And you actually get this as a parent. When you love your child, you give them rules. He's far more conservative than conservative culture. But he's actually far more compassionate than the most liberal liberals because he didn't just die for people who made a few mistakes. He, just didn't, he didn't just die for like open-minded people. And he didn't just die for tolerant people. He died for murderers and he died for bigots and he died for intolerant people and he died for closed-minded people. He takes liberalism far more seriously than anyone in the Bay Area. John Watson's an old Scottish minister, and he's described it like this. He is tenderness without weakness. He is strength without harshness. He is humility without the slightest lack of confidence. He's unhesitating authority with a complete lack of self-absorption. Unbending convictions without the slightest lack of approachability. He is power without insensitivity, enthusiasm without fanaticism, holiness without moralism, passion without prejudice. Nothing he does falls short. In fact, he's always surprising you. He's always taking your breath away because he's so incomparably better than you could imagine for yourself. Why? The surprises you get when you read the life of Jesus are the surprises of perfection. Don't tame him. It's nonsense. It's actually narcissism to do so. When you take away His law, you take away His love. When you take away His grace, you take away His love. Let His law and let His grace frustrate you and comfort you. and you Because you will get no rest and you will experience no hope if you make Him into your own image. Because you won't be dealing with Him anymore. Just your own self-projection. Don't tame Him. Secondly, realize He understands you more than you understand yourself. I tell my children this all the time. They're going to probably have to tell their therapist this. I'm like, I understand your happiness and your sadness better than you do. Uh, this summer, I read um, a lot of ta Coates, if y'all are familiar with him. Uh, he wrote this book. Uh, it's a letter to his son about growing up as a black man in Baltimore in the 80s. And... As I read it, the main thing I realized is that a white guy who grew up in Alabama and lives in the Bay Area 
cannot understand this man's experience at all. And that for me to speak authoritatively about his experience is offensive in so many different ways. There's a cultural and racial tension in our country right now, and that tension is exasperated and heightened when someone who can't empathize speaks authoritatively into the lives that he or she can't understand. None of us wants to waste time with someone who tries to tell us about our own life but can't understand our experience because they've never entered into it. What the incarnation is, it is God becoming man so that he does understand you. Don't waste your time with any religion that doesn't have an incarnate God who's not entered into our story. The fact that God became man means that he's experienced poverty. He's experienced hunger. He's experienced racism. He's experienced betrayal. He's experienced injustice and loss and sorrow. He's experienced abuse. He's experienced temptation. The uniqueness of Christianity, no other religion claims this. This rises and falls on whether or not the incarnation occurred in history. You can't conflate it with any other religion. It's the only religion that at the very center is the claim that God stepped into history and experienced our condition in this world. Why did he do that? Because there is nothing more isolating and hopeless than feeling like no one can understand me. The way sociologist Brene Brown said this, empathy means that to connect with you, I have to find something in myself that says, I know the feeling that you have. I know what it's like to go through that. When God came in the person of Jesus, that means he knows He saw friends die. He experienced injustice. He knows poverty. Would you or could you worship or connect with a God who stands far off and just tells you how to behave? Don't tame Him. Realize He understands you more deeply than you know. And then lastly, fix your eyes on Him. If He is who He he says He is, our whole life actually has to revolve around Him. He's our center. He's our heart maker. He made us. He knows us. He loves us. Everything in our life has to center around those realities. If you don't know how to begin fixing your eyes on Him, you're like, what does that mean? That's weird. Read the Gospels. I'll read them with you. Eric, Jess, Laura, a lot of people will read them in here with you if you don't even know how to read them, right? Because the Gospels is, this is God acted out the character of His heart in human form. And so what happens is you read it and you go, you go like, all right, I want to understand the heart of God. Oh, He heals sick people. He really cares about that. He gives sight to the blind people. He really cares about that. He forgives really morally bankrupt people. He is really patient with His followers when they really don't get it. He gets really irritated with anyone who makes it seem like His love is withheld until you morally perform. Wow, He really loves the law. Look at his temptation. He really understands what it feels like to not want to do the right thing. He really understands suffering. Look at his weeping. He knows the sorrow of loss. Look at his winemaking. He knows how to feast. Look at his arrest. He knows injustice. Look at his death for our sin. He loves me more than I thought anybody could. The reason that our hearts are not full is because it's not been filled with the love of our heart maker. If you want it filled, you come to Him and see His heart and see His grace and see His love. 
Because grace means that His love is unconditional. And this is the tragedy, is that we put preconditions on His love. It's us that are messing up the concept of unconditional love and grace all the time. We're put preconditions on His love. I can't get into this with you, Jesus, with you, God, with you, my maker, with you, my king, because you don't agree with my particular culture's sexual ethics right now. You know what you've done? You've put a precondition on His love. I can't get into this with you, Jesus, with you, maker, with you, king, uh, because if I get into this with you, you're going to make me feel sad because you're going to say that there's some things wrong with me. And that's going to be embarrassing. Well, first of all, everybody knows there's something wrong with them. If you don't know there's something wrong with you, we like put you in a hospital because you're not safe. Don't ever say, I have no regrets. That's a really unsafe thing to say. Like, it's important to have regrets. That means you understand there's a difference between right and wrong and stuff like that, right? So we know there's something wrong with us. And what happens is when we're like, well, but I don't want to deal with you, Jesus, because you're going to say something's wrong with me. It's going to go deep into my heart. It's going to be hard. It's going to be troubling. I'm going to be embarrassed. Then we're all of a sudden, we're like sick people who are like, I don't want to go to the doctor. I'm going to use WebMD. I'm just going to self-diagnose what's wrong with me. I'll figure it out. Just go ahead and Google image search, right? Any medical condition. It's the most dangerous thing you can do on the internet. But that's what we're doing when we're like, this is my own trouble. I don't want to have you, Jesus, kind of step in and call it out. We need our heart maker to actually come and tell us what's wrong. And he says, here's what's wrong with you. Here's what's wrong with me. Is that we doubted his love. That's where it all originated. That's the heart of sin. Because when we doubt God's love for us, we stop trusting Him. And we start running everywhere else and cling to anything to get a sense of meaning to justify ourselves. And then we become tribal. And we become hurtful. And we become hurting people. Because we lost our center. Don't not come because you're afraid to hear Jesus say, there's something wrong with you. He sets no precondition on your coming. So why would you? Don't say, I can't get into this with you, Jesus, because I'm not the religious type. I have moral baggage that's out of control. The Old Testament is there to show you none of you have moral baggage that God hasn't seen before. Don't set that precondition on His love. He hasn't. If He is your heart maker and He's given His life for you, why would you set any preconditions on placing your whole life in His hands, resting in His love, and centering your whole existence on Him. Because at the cross, by Him becoming our sin, so that we could become received as perfect, He takes credit for the fact that we broke ourselves and He broke the world, and He gives us credit for His perfect life. He is cut off from God so that we wouldn't have to be. Isaiah 53 says He was wounded for our transgressions, He was crushed for our sin, He suffered in order to bring us peace. <coughs> Words are cheap. People say a lot of things. A lot of us are be like, hey, let's get coffee. Let's grab lunch sometime. And then we won't do it, right? <clears throat> Words mean very little unless you act on them. A God who tells you what it's like, oh, I'm merciful, I'm love, I'm great, I'm powerful, but doesn't come and do something is a waste of time. God doesn't say, hey, I'm forgiving, I'm powerful, I'm holy. He comes and acts out forgiveness on the cross. God doesn't say, I love you. He comes and shows us what love is. Jesus doesn't just say, I am life. He comes and conquers the grave in the resurrection. So, stay in this moment. 
stay right here. Don't worry, it doesn't stall you. It doesn't mean you can't go to class tomorrow. But what it does is it has implications and informs how you do the rest of your life. What you do with your irritating roommate. What do you do with your overwhelming classes, your self-loathing, your hypocrisy, our anger, our insecurity, our guilt, our family's issues. Stay in this moment. It doesn't put everything else on hold in your life. It equips you to go through everything else in your life with a center. With the knowledge and assurance that your heart maker knows you, forgives you, gave his life for you, rose again for you. He loves you. Stay in that moment. Stay at the foot of the cross. Let's pray.